following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. Father, it is, uh, it's an honor and a privilege for us to be here today, and I, I pray not one of us in this room would mistake that it's anything but that. Uh, God, we need you, whether we would be here today acknowledging that or not, we need you. We've made our attempt to sing to you and to exalt your name, to worship you here today. We've prayed to you, faulting prayers. Father, we have sought to dedicate children to you. In every way, we've really wanted this to be about you. And now we're giving you an opportunity, Father, to to speak to us. And uh, God, I pray that we would um, honor you by being attentive, by listening very carefully to the words that you have for us. And God, that we would be quick to understand and to obey what you have for us today. And this I pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. All right, for those that are um, uh, regulars here at Harvest, uh, you can see by the outline, this is a bit of a non-traditional outline, a bit of a non-traditional sermon here today, a little bit different. Um, So for our guests... Um, in some ways, this is what we do normally. We definitely get God's Word open, and normally we just kind of work verse by verse through it. We're going to read the passage. I'm going to read it all for you in just a moment. Um, but then uh, please understand that kind of the way I'm breaking it down here today is a little bit uh, different for us, but it was the only way that I could mask the fact that I wanted to say 15 different things. So um, here's, here's the text of God's Word. This is Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse... Number 10. Uh, This comes, by the way, after John the Baptist has preached a pretty powerful, hard-hitting sermon. And uh, those who are listening to them, this is kind of how they respond to it. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized And said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by means of threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The word of God. Well, there's every possibility that as I uh, read that and then begin to work through all of this, there's every possibility that this sermon will be useless to you. That it will be a useless, good-for-nothing sermon. 
You see, a sermon is only useful if the listener actually presses in to hear the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, and to live it, live it out. A sermon is useless apart from a listener changing in its hearing. Because I'm not here to peddle information, but to preach transformation. We ought to be changed as a result of being under the teaching of God's word. Different, transformed. Uh, But are we? Or is it just a tradition? Is it just something we do? But it doesn't affect us. I mean, what we see going on in this section of, John's, of Luke's gospel is John the Baptist preaching in a way that was bringing about transformation in the lives of people, not just any people, people who you would not even expect would have a desire or need to change. These are people who were being called to, we looked at the word last week, they were being called, being called to repent. And in that word, we decided two key words helped us to understand it. In repentance, we agree with what God says, and we turn to follow his way. We agree and we turn. That's repentance. And the people that John's preaching to, having fallen under conviction, asked this question. It's right in the text. What then shall we do? That is the question that every person ought to ask. Every time they come under the teaching of God's word. If they're genuinely repentant. Every person who genuinely wants to agree with God and turn toward him should be asking the question. What then shall I do? What then shall I do? Well, five behaviors that will show that I will show when I'm a truly repentant person. Let's look at these first. If I'm really repentant, if I'm willing to ask that question, here's five behaviors. First of all this, and we see this in the first few verses, we have these these three representative groups of people. We have the crowd, we have the tax collectors, we have the soldiers. It's really intentional that we have these three groups. They're very diverse groups. We're going to talk about them more in a few moments. Each is impacted by, the, by the, the message that they've heard. Each wants to repent. Each asks the same question. And there are some behaviors that these three groups then begin to show that indicate to us what it means to be a truly repentant person, someone who agrees with God and turns toward him. First of all this, and we've already talked about it, I ask what I need to do after hearing the word preached. I would just tuck this away. I would just like every Sunday after you hear the sermon preached and you would say, okay, what do I need to do now? And to a large extent, this is what our small groups help us to do. And if you're in a small group and you're discussing the sermon again and you're getting together with some people and talking it all out and you're holding to each other to account for how you're now going to live this out. It's a great place to ask the question, but it's a dangerous one. It's not one that we're going to just ask flippantly. What do I have to do, God, to live for you, to be like you, uh, to more fully reflect the person of Jesus Christ? What do I have to do to obey what your word has just said to me? I heard what you said. I understood what you said. I know that I can't ignore what you said. 
I know I have to change some things. Now, understand, that's a dangerous line of thinking. God may ask us to give up, to move beyond, to sacrifice for Him in a way that we weren't anticipating. God, I need to hear this. What what are the things that need to change in my life? I ask what I need to do after hearing the word preached. Second behavior. And this is what flows out of the answer we see to these three groups. I meet the needs of others and not myself. And really the meeting of the needs... If I ask God the question and he answers the question, the meaning of the needs is really just what flows out of the desire to obey. It's not the good works themselves that guarantee that we are saved or forgiven. We're not working towards this. We're not earning anything. The good works are the outward expression of the inward reality. That's what's important to take away here. It's heart change resulting in hands-on service to others in Jesus' name. And if you claim that you're a Christian, if you claim that you believe in God, but there's no, there's no real evidence to prove that, there's, there's no alteration of your life course, There's no evidence in the way that you treat other people or in your generosity. If if there's none of that, then you really have no claim on Jesus Christ. I mean, I would just ask you, on on the basis of what then are you making your claim to be a follower of Jesus? If there's evidence, if if there's no people around you are saying that person just really loves me and that person has ministered to me and cared for me and 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 put out for me and if your life is not god-centered and others focused then you've missed the clarity of jesus words when he said it in matthew 25 he says when you have done it what did he what was he talking about visiting people in prison clothing those who are naked feeding those who are hungry ministering to those who are sick When you have done it, when you have done these very hands-on practical things, when you have done it to the least of my brothers, you have done it to me. That's what he said. That's clear. That is clear. Clear? It's clear. And so so if if you're not doing any of those things, if you're not outwardly showing then there's no claim to the inward reality. Five behaviors that will show that I will show when I'm a truly repentant person. One, two, here's the third one. I challenge cultural norms in how I choose, choose to live. I challenge the cultural norms. What, what, what that really is saying is that when I become a follower of Jesus Christ, I become a citizen of a different kingdom, one that is not of this world. So everything that, that governs this world is, is no longer what governs me. And what governs me is this revelation of God himself. The constitution that I fall under is not the constitution of any land. My citizenship is not first to Canada, but my citizen, citizenship is first to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the constitution by which I run my life is the word of God. 
And so that puts me very often, I hope you feel this tension as a follower of Christ, but this puts me in conflict constantly with the world around me, on, especially on moral issues and, and choices for righteousness. And I should be feeling that tension. I should understand that I'm not of this world. And in living my life for him, I challenge the cultural norms and how I choose to live. The, the SOP, anybody know what that is? The SOP, the Standard Operating Procedure for human beings is this. And this is the core of why it's different to be a citizen of God's kingdom versus a citizen of this world. The SOP for, for every human being is look out for number one. We are about ourselves. You say, well, prove that to me. We just had lovely children up here at the front. And every one of those children will have to be taught. It will not come inherent to them. They will have to be taught how to share. Because as adults, we say, look out for number one. But the baby version of that is mine. Right? No, 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 sweetheart. You need to share mine, mine. And listen, it's no different for us as adults. We just fancied up with bigger words. The, the standard operating procedure is, is us. We look out for ourselves. It, it, to share doesn't come naturally. To be others focused does not come naturally for us. And so, especially these tax guys and these soldiers, they were really entirely about themselves. He says to the tax collectors, this is verse 12 now. He says, collect no more, this is verse 13, sorry. Collect no more than you were authorized to do. So the thing about the tax collectors was they were Jewish people who were collaborating with the Romans. That made them hated in their culture, by the way. And their whole gig was this, and they had no supervision and no one cared that they did it. They would set up their tax booths and they would tax the people the rate that they owed to the Romans. And then the, the, what they would do in their SOP is, is they would surcharge. And no one, no one cared. And whatever they could get from the people, they would surcharge. And so they would get paid by the Romans to collect the taxes. And then they would surcharge the people, in, in essence, defrauding the people, extorting. Well, you can't come through this gate unless you pay me this much. And there was no, no, no safeguards on it. And so they're hated by their people because they're cooperating with the Romans. And they're hated because they're basically, as part of their job, unchecked, ripping people off. Every time they collect taxes. We're in tax season right here in Canada. Say, um, uh, say this. We don't have it that bad. Go ahead. You are not convinced. But we don't. <laughs> I love the tax man in Canada. Go ahead. Say it. Yeah, you don't believe that for a second. But compared to what was going on then, and then these soldiers, so these are Roman soldiers, they're occupying the land. These are the big tough guys uh, carrying around their M16s and, and lording it over the people. And they're using their power and their strength to basically bully people into extortion demands. I'm going to make your life miserable unless you pay me, give me this food, give me what you have. 
John is saying to both of these, though that is the cultural expectation and no one in authority is saying anything about it, I want you to stop doing those things. You want to live for God? You want to truly repent? Soldier, be content with your wages, is what the text says. Taxman, only collect what you're supposed to collect and quit becoming rich off the backs of your fellow Jews. Listen, if you want to be like Jesus, you cannot be concerned with what the prevailing culture says about how you ought to live your life and you need to be only concerned with how Jesus says you ought to be living your life. Number four, I respond outwardly as a result of real heart change. We've kind of touched on this. Again, the change needs to be inward. Everything outward originates in the heart. The question, what then shall we do, flows out of them because they've already made the decision to repent. It started internally. They had a desire to be forgiven because that was the offer that was on the table. Back to verse 3 of chapter 3 when John went into all the region proclaiming, notice, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and they realized maybe for the first time that they were sinners and separated from from God and they wanted to, to no longer be separated from him but be in a relationship with him and because they wanted that and their sins were in the way of that, they knew they needed forgiveness. They wanted the offer that was put on the table. And so they sought to repent. They wanted God's grace. The whole thing is an inward thing. So what flows out of that, everything that that John is then telling them to do, the, 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 the giving, the generosity, the honesty, the integrity, the compassion, the mercy, the contentment, the peace, all of that flows out of a heart that genuinely wanted forgiveness from God. I respond outwardly as a result of real heart change. It's the real heart change that we're going after. And then finally this, five behaviors of a truly repentant person. Number five, I pay the price literally. There is a cost of following Jesus. I mean, each of the points that John makes involves an outlay of cash or goods. He he says to each of them here, again, picking it up at verse 10, he says to the crowds, if you have two tunics, if you have some extra clothes, and really, we're not talking about people who had a lot anyways. He's talking to the the rank-and-file Jew. He's talking to the regular citizen of that land, not wealthy at all. And he basically says to them, if you have as little as two, you have the tunic that you would normally wear, I mean, we have closets full of clothes and dressers full of clothes. And we have, how many people have like a winter and summer wardrobe? Raise your hand, confess right now. You got to go both and you got to pull those out and pull other stuff. And we have so much clothes. And in this culture, they would have had one tunic that they would wear like all the time, some undergarments, other clothes that they would wear under that, but one tunic. And, And if, if, maybe they had a second one. And John's saying to them, if you have to, give one of those away. All you need is the basics of life. And we in this room, even, I'm saying, most of us, almost everybody in this room, we have way more than we actually need. 
way more. Even the lowest among us has more than we actually need. John's saying, this this is radical. There's a price to pay, literally. If you have two, give one away, half. If you have food, not saying you have extra food, just saying if you have food, if you have any food, Notice what he says? Do likewise. Give some of it away. Radical. I mean, I don't think for a second, I, I, I don't want to be preaching to you and not saying that I, I don't think for a second Cheryl and I are really living this way. This is radical. Pay the price, literally. I think about all of this. He says the same thing to the tax collector, same thing to the soldiers, no extorting, no defrauding, be content with what you have. And I, I'm thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Honesty time. How many people hate that verse? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The number one indicator of whether you are a good Christian a good follower of Christ, is not whether you have been baptized and become a member of the church. It's, it's not whether you uh, serve in Harvest Kids or you came here early to help set up uh, the auditorium this morning. The number one indicator of a Christ follower's heart toward God is their bank statement. We don't like it. We don't like it. But if you would all bring your bank statements here next week, we could just look through all of those, just compare them back and forth and really find out, not based on whether you're a member of this church or whether you serve somewhere or how good your talk is, but on the basis of your bank statement, we could tell each other whether or not we're really serious about Jesus. I didn't write it. Jesus said it in his word. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that's why John goes after for each of them, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the Romans, the Roman soldiers, he says. It's about your money. It's where you spend it. That's how we're going to find out if you're really serious about this. Five behaviors of a truly repentant person. Four reasons why I should give John the Baptist my close attention. The message is so powerful and life-altering that some think that maybe John himself is the Messiah. That's what we see going on in these verses. The people are in expectation, verse 15. They're all questioning. They're thinking, is this the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior who's come uh, to deliver us? And John uh, hears this and, and, and quickly and decisively refutes it. And yet he's a preacher who we have to listen to. I mean, I find him so compelling in what he says and who he is. First of all, he had this strong sense of overwhelming unworthiness. I have that in quotes because I read it from a commentator I read. A strong sense of his overwhelming unworthiness. I hope that the older you get and the longer you walk with Jesus Christ, the more of an overwhelming sense of unworthiness you have. Because the more you get to know God, the more awesome He becomes to you, the more you realize how much grace and love and mercy was required to save you. 
You get a greater sense of your unworthiness. I just love what he says in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The lowest of the servant jobs dealing with the feet. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's mightier than I. And yet this is John. We've talked about this before. Later in chapter 7, Luke is going to say, he's going to record what Jesus says about John, where, where Jesus says of John, uh, no, one, um, no one has been born among women who's greater than John. He's the greatest, according to Jesus. And yet John feels himself to be the lowest. What chance do I have? Can't think too much of myself. Secondly, he never lost sight of who he, was, who he was working for. That seems pretty clear. Who is he working for again? Yeah, he's working for the Lord, right? He's working for Jesus Christ. Never lost sight of that. He knew that everything he was doing was for God's glory. And I, I love John. John, it's, there's no ambiguity. It's just so clear and direct. His life is so filled with conviction. And I love that about him. And I would aspire to have the same conviction, the same clarity in my life concerning who I'm working for. Because very often I look at my own selfishness and I really think I'm still working for me. Number three. He accepted God's path for him no matter how painful it would be. In the same way that he was, he was just unequivocating. He, he, didn't, he, didn't, uh, he, he didn't waver at all in his conviction toward the tax collectors and soldiers. He held nothing back. They were asking the question. And these were tough people. But he also didn't hold back from preaching to those who were not asking the question. What then shall we do? I mean, I understand as I preach this message and lots of guests are here today. I understand that not all of you are that thrilled with what I'm saying right now. I realize that not all of you even want to be in the room. I realize that there is a bunch of people here in the room who might not be asking the question and won't care about the question. I get that, but I'm preaching to you anyway. I'll let God sort out with you how things uh, should fall in your life. Not everybody was asking John the question. Nevertheless, he directed the application towards some people who were not asking the question. Uh, The one who is named here is King Herod. And he preached to a man who had the power to make John's life miserable. And did he? Uh, For sure he did. By the end of this passage, we find out he gets thrown in prison. If you track with what happens to John in the other Gospels, you find out that eventually Herod has him executed. Yet John accepted God's path for him, no matter the pain that it would bring to him. That's something that I don't think any of us here are likely to experience, imprisonment and death for the sake of Jesus Christ. But it's on the line today for some people who name Christ in dozens of countries around the world. I think the biggest struggle we face, though, is, is, is just this idea that it's not all about us. And there can be so much pain attached to that, just wrestling that down in our lives, putting God first, putting others ahead of our own needs. 
See, our own painful struggle might relate more to our place in the world and how we relate to others. What God would choose for us with his will. Amy Ninkovic told me, with her little boy at SickKids, she told me that she prayed right around Christmas before Luke was diagnosed. She prayed, she felt that she needed to pray for God to be more intimate to her. That she would feel a closeness to him that she hadn't yet really felt. She felt like her faith was maybe cooling a little bit. And she, she wanted to experience God more than she was. We like non-painful answers to prayers. See where I'm going? She believes God answered her prayer. The mother of a nine-month-old boy diagnosed with leukemia believes that God answered her prayer. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Somebody would would actually say that the pain is part of it. And I'm not going to seek to get out from underneath that. John accepted God's path for him, no matter how painful it would be. And so John gets my attention. Amy and Alex get my attention. And what God is speaking to them right now is so powerful because it's being proclaimed so as through pain. We ought to listen to such people. For a reason, John... Four reasons John gets my attention. Number four, he didn't quit his job until it was impossible for him to continue. There's so much. I'm, I'm tired. I'm just so tired of doing this ministry. There's, there's too flippant a use of the word. I'm burned out. I just got a lot going on in my life right now. I just don't feel like my life situation is such that I could really do this. John didn't quit until his job was absolutely impossible for him to continue doing it. By the way, what was that impossibility? It's right at the end of the text. Yeah, he gets thrown in jail. That makes it tough. But he didn't quit. And his ministry wasn't even really a long one. I... The scriptures aren't totally clear on this, but as best we can piece it together, at the most, John's ministry was maybe two, two and a half years long. That's it. That's the whole career. I've already done six times that just here in Barrie. I've done ten times that in, in my life already. He had two years, maybe two and a half. And he stuck to it under tremendous pressure. He was faithful at it. He accomplished, and this is so important, he accomplished the thing that God had given him to do. He, he accomplished the thing that God had given him to do. Now, you don't need to be responsible for what God has given me to do. And I don't need to be responsible for what God has given you to do. And you don't need to worry about the person at your right hand or your left hand. 
God's given you something to do. God's given you something to do. Whatever God has given you to do, that's the thing that you stand before him for in order to give account. Just be faithful with that. Don't quit the job that God has given to you. He's gifted you. He's given you passions. Stay at it. Be tenacious. Don't give up. Press on and persevere until the last day. And you breathe your last. Well, in these first two, we've talked about the repentant person. We've talked about the preacher and now the message itself. Three points I need to grasp about the word that John preached. First this. Good works flow out of genuine repentance and do not earn us forgiveness from God. This is so important. I know we've kind of pounded on this nail a little bit. I, I want to hit it again. Uh, there's no earning it. Salvation comes to us as a free gift from Jesus Christ simply by exercising our faith in him. Every other religion misses this. Every other religion misses this and expects you to work in such a way that you earn it from God. I present to you the case of the two men who were being crucified with Jesus Christ. One of them continuing to scorn him, but the other, seeing what was going on, rebukes the the first criminal and says to him, We deserve what we're getting. We're criminals. This man did nothing and then turns to Jesus and says this. Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now this, this man has no opportunity to do any religious rituals, to join a church, to do any of the things that a good Christ follower ought to do. He has no opportunity to do any of that. And yet uh, God's grace flows down to him because he's confessed that he's a sinner. He's expressed his need of forgiveness. He's ready to agree with God and turn from it, to repent. And he says that to Jesus in, in these words, remember me, I'm guilty. And so the only thing, the only transaction that happens here is repentance, faith, salvation. That's it. He couldn't earn it. And what's crazy is that, that it's no different for any of us. Every single one of us comes to faith in Jesus Christ in exactly the same manner. Faith produces repentance and brings forgiveness that manifests itself in righteous living. That's the whole thing. It's not the other way around. Every other religion tells you to light this candle, pay this sum, say this prayer, offer these gifts, chant these words, pray this many times, make this pilgrimage to earn the favor of whichever God, whoever he or she might be. But God in Jesus Christ alone offers his unconditional love as a free gift of his grace to forgive our sins apart from any works that we would do. The only requirement is this, agree with God and turn to him. That's it. Secondly, the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. I love these three groups, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. Each one of them responds in their own way, but with the same question. And John responds back to them. 
We understand uh, when these three groups are mentioned, uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles and collaborators and uh, people who were despised and hated, those that were irreligious, those who were pagans, whatever it was, they're all welcome. John responds to each of their questions. He doesn't say to the Romans, hey boys, sorry, you're Romans, you're Gentiles, you're pagans. This isn't for you. Hey, tax collectors, you're only about yourselves. You never go to temple. No one wants you there anyways. We hardly consider you to be Jews anymore. This isn't for you. I don't know. Jesus' invitation is in, it, it's inclusive. It's, it's, it's anyone can come. And I love that. Successful businessmen and women. The beer and bingo crowd. Gays and lesbians, the middle class, drug addicts and alcoholics. You don't need to reform to come here. You don't need to change those things before you get in the room, before you come to Jesus. The homeless, the uber wealthy, the soldier and police officer, the housewife and factory worker. The unemployed, men and women, old and young, married and single, divorced, separated. It's for everyone, isn't it? No matter your life situation, forgiveness is your need and forgiveness is being offered. As a gift from God. Number three. Having talked about that offer being available to everyone. There will always be those who find the message compelling. And those who find it threatening. The people in the three groups asked the question. Herod didn't ask the question. John calls him out for his many public sins in verses 19 and 20. He's, he's not receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though these others found it so compelling and were drawn to it, Herod was not like that at all. And I understand that the majority of people that come here on any given Sunday are indeed pressing in to hear the word of God and to find out how their life can be more reflective of who he is. But there are those every single week who come here who are not compelled by the word of God, but are actually hostile toward it. There are those who come every single week who are, at best we could say, indifferent about it. Or there are even those who come who are angry about it. Or those who pridefully think they don't need it. And there are even those who come on any given week and know it's for them. They understand it. They're actually compelled by it, but they walk away not obeying and they walk away sadly, knowing they ought to hear what God's word is saying to them. I understand that whenever I preach the word of God, there are some who find it compelling and some who find it threatening. This is so consistent with what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. All right, we're getting close to the end. Five, four, three, two. Two truths about Jesus that I should see in what was preached. Review again verses 16 and 17. John says, I baptize with water. He who is mightier than I, that's Jesus, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. How many people have ever winnowed? We don't winnow a lot. Um, it's not really a common thing we do. Maybe some farmers here have winnowed with equipment that in past days did not exactly exist. And um, the two truths about Jesus are really around this metaphor of winnowing. Let me just show you a picture up here so you have an idea of what would happen. Uh, These are what we would call now garden rakes, but in old days it would be called like um, just a winnowing fork. And they would have been made of wood and the grain would all be harvested. The sheaves would be cut down and uh, would be put down on the ground. And then um, the winnowing forks would be used to throw it up in the air. And the wind would help to separate so that you would have the grain and you would have the chaff. That was good for nothing. And the chaff would be burned and the grain would be separated and used uh, for bread, etc. And um, this is what God is doing. This is a picture of what God is doing. Jesus Christ has come to separate. We don't like this. A lot of people don't like this about Jesus. They want all the happy parts of Jesus. They want all the Prince of Peace parts. They want everything that makes us feel comfortable. They don't want the hard parts. And this is the hard part. That he separates those who are repentant from those who are unrepentant. He gathers the repentant to himself. That's great news, right? For those of us who love him and have been called to him, he gathers us to himself. That idea of gathering in and being part of his family and finding the forgiveness that he has for us, we're we're the grain of wheat. But he sends the unrepentant away from himself for all eternity. The chaff he will burn, the text says, with unquenchable fire. Sends them to hell. It's... It's increasingly becoming unpopular to preach about hell in Bible teaching churches. People are uncomfortable today with the idea of hell. And I want to tell you, I'm uncomfortable with it. And every person who loves Jesus ought to be uncomfortable with it. And yet I find the clarity of God's word on this too much to ignore. And for those who do not have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is an eternal separation coming and there is an unquenchable fire that is ahead for you if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Two things, two truths about Jesus that we need to see in what was preached and then this one thing that we cannot ignore. And you need to write this down in your notes. One thing that we cannot ignore, there is a risk to repenting. We've already seen that there's a cost to truly repenting. There's a cost to the listener who obeys. There's a cost to the preacher. We've seen that in John's life. And following Jesus Christ means dying to yourself. There's one thing we cannot ignore. There's a risk to repenting, but write this down as well, and to not repenting. This is actually a far greater risk 
You don't want to be separated from Jesus Christ for all eternity. Not when you're designed by the Creator to be in relationship with Him. And so this message started with a question, what then shall we do? What do you think you should do? Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you um, for this time. And I pray that um, each of us, each of us in this room, would be quick to, uh, to obey you, uh, to follow you, to agree with you about these things that we've heard in your word. Father, that you would, um, you would do a deep work in the lives of those here who love you and maybe have been struggling with matters of repentance in their own life. Well, Father, I would also pray for those in the room who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior. And God, whatever resistance they have in their heart toward that, I pray, God, that that would be broken down. And God, that they would be quick to hear, to understand, to believe, and to turn toward you. Father, thank, for, thank you for uh, speaking to us so clearly here this morning for all that's gone on in this room today. Hear us now as we worship and close this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.